here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content's added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hook segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Cece and Carly, welcome to our latest Books with Hook segment. Let us dive right in. Carly, would you like to begin with the first query letter? Absolutely. Here we go. Dear Bianca, Kylie, and Cece, thank you for taking the time to create such an insightful and enjoyable podcast. I can't recommend it enough. Moths and Raisins is an 84,000 word psychological thriller along the lines of Behind Her Eyes by Sarah Pinborough and The Little Darlings by Melanie Golding. It is a standalone with potential for a spinoff. Trigger warnings, domestic violence, inappropriate relationship, and an accidental injury of a dog. Patrice's husband, Dawn, goes in for ACL surgery and dies for one minute. His subsequent memory issues increasingly seem to have nothing to do with the surgery. 
When Don suddenly separates from Patrice and cuts off financial help to his mother, Patrice's mother-in-law comes to her with an impossible idea that echoes her own worries. A stranger inhabits Don's body. However, it is not until Don, a 37-year-old teacher, leaves a gift of lingerie for an underage girl that Patrice becomes convinced. The only hope of undoing what was done and getting Don back before the stranger does something to ruin Don's career in life is to uncover who the stranger is and how this happened. If not Don, then who would go to the places he sneaks off to and who would seek out the people he's encountered? Patrice will do anything, find out. Like my main character, I am half Filipino. I work as a ghostwriter of short memoir for clients of Story Terrace. At Gotham University, Manuscript Academy, and San Francisco Community College, I attend writing courses. As a volunteer, I attended the San Francisco Writers Conference in 2017 and 2018 and Litquake Literary Festival in 2019. While living in my husband's home country, Luxembourg, I was a social media marketing consultant. We now live in San Francisco with our baby and two pups. Thank you so much for your time and feedback. All the best, G. Wonderful. Thanks, Carly. Cece, would you like to dive into your thoughts on that? Absolutely. So I really enjoyed this query letter. The author told us everything we needed to know in the first paragraph in terms of like there's comps, why have we have the word count? I'm wondering, like the genre, et cetera, I'm wondering in terms of the, the paragraph where we have the plot, right? Like there's a great hook. There's someone else or potentially someone else in her husband's body. And I can see that being a great way to really pique readers' curiosity. And I like that. I'm wondering whether the conflict right now, as it's described, is too focused on Dawn and not enough on Patrice. It feels like she's almost like a vessel and everything's happening through her husband. So I think it's a really easy fix. I would just add one sentence in the beginning of the paragraph about Patrice and whatever conflict she has in her own life, separate from Dawn, um, whatever else is going on. And then we can learn that Dawn went into surgery and everything else happened and tighten just a little bit, just because there's quite long as it is and we don't need every single detail. But yeah, I'm like intrigued to know who's inside this man's body and what happened and what's going to happen. And is this other man who's inside his body going to come out because she probably misses her husband. So I thought this was a great query letter. Awesome. Thanks, Cece. Carly, what did you think? Yeah, this is a really interesting hook. And Little Darling's a pretty successful book, I believe. So so I think that's a, a great comp. I wasn't a fan of the title, Moths and Raisins. I'm just not loving it. I don't think it says enough about the book. It's also a bit strange. You know, those are two words that have nothing to do with each other. And yet they're together. If this was to be a title, the book cover would have to do so much work. And I just don't think that the title also matches the genre as well. I'm just seeing a little bit of a disconnect there. A couple things just to point out. This says it, it's a standalone with potential for spinoff. I would say it's a standalone novel. I think there was a word missing there. I also noticed a spelling error in the first line of the body paragraph. It says dies for one minute instead of minute. I'm assuming they thought maybe two minutes and then they switch it to minutes. Like I, I get it. I, de- I tend to overlook little spelling errors. I know some agents are militant about if they see an error, then they you know put it in the spam or whatever and are very black or white about it. There's so much work that goes into these query letters, these novels. We're human beings. We make mistakes. So I I never reject something based on a small spelling error. So I just want everybody to know that. <laughs> there are other agents that probably feel differently, but I'm, I'm just letting you know. I'm, I'm happy to overlook that. The one thing I wanted to mention about the trigger warning, thank you for doing that. Obviously, I've been listening to the podcast and, and reading my tweets and all of that. So I so appreciate that. I'm wondering if it needs to go in this spot. I'm almost wondering if it can go 
at the bottom, yes, there's domestic violence, inappropriate relationship, and accidental injury of a dog. But I don't think the accidental injury of a dog, I don't think we saw that. That whole trigger warning could just go at the bottom because if somebody is to request the book, then these will be content warnings or trigger warnings. So again, that's, I think, fine to go at the bottom. I was a little confused on whether this was horror or not. Like, is this really psychological thriller? I wasn't sure. Obviously, the comp that you had, the Melanie Golden comp, I haven't read the Sarah Pritvaro book that was marketed and pitched and such as psychological thriller. But yeah, I don't know. I Like, there's so many ways this kind of, it's not a trope, you know, somebody in somebody else's body, but it could be like satire. It could be horror. It could, you know, there's just so many directions that this could go. And I just wasn't grounded really enough in tone. So I would just, I don't know, find a way to just let us know a little bit more of what's going on instead of being a teensy bit vague about, you know, the stranger to something to ruin Don's career in life. I think we're, that's the mention about the lingerie to the teenager and things like that. But that's just one incident. Like that's not a whole book. We can't build a whole book on you know, lingerie to a teenager. So yeah, I, I think we just need a little bit more detail there, a little bit more clarity in terms of tone. I think I would appreciate personally. Ultimately, I thought the author bio was great. So, you know, it, it follows all of the you know guidelines and, and rules of the query. And, and I think structurally, it's, it's quite sound. Just the, the author did share with me that the title had changed. So they had an original title and this is a new one. Uh, I want to float the original title by you to see if you prefer that. The original title was Crocodile Tears. Yeah, I like that much better. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good title. I like it. Carly, just to reiterate what you said in terms of the trigger warning, if whatever the trigger warning is, is going to be covered within the scope of the query letter, you would suggest that it comes in that opening paragraph. If it's something that we are not going to see in the query letter or in those opening pages, then it can come near the end. Is that what you're saying? Correct. Yeah, I think that just sets you up for the most amount of success. Because if you have the trigger warning at the top, and then you don't talk about those triggers in the query, then I'm just waiting for whatever's going to happen. So yeah, I, I agree. That's a good summary, Bianca. Okay, wonderful. All right, Cece, what did you think of those opening pages? For the listener, Patrice is in a backyard. And I assumed it was her backyard at first. That was uh, that was an incorrect assumption. And she's just observing, right? Like she's clearly a very observant person. She's imagining Berkeley, probably tired of her roommate's guests. I'm assuming that was supposed to be plural, retreating into her bedroom with Rumiko. But Patrice is saying, well, no, probably that didn't happen because I would have crossed paths with them. Berkeley's apartment isn't that big. So the setup of a party is a great place to start a novel because you have action happening. And that's and that's a good thing, right? And there's a lot that goes into a party, socialization, how should you behave, what you're really thinking in your head, that can be a really effective way to build character. I do think, though, that this needs a bit of work or perhaps it's starting in the wrong place. I'm not sure because... I get no emotion from Patrice and Patrice is our protagonist, right? Like, so we see a lot of description from Patrice, Patrice observing others. And I do get emotion from other characters. So Patrice observes that someone says, how is reading my fortune going to help? Asks the irritated woman. Patrice also observes that, you know, the woman's question is valid, but her superior tone is not. Patrice observes that the spectators might as well be on the other side of a computer because there are many eyes on them. It's like they're just being spectators. She observes a lot of things and that's a good thing. She should still observe these things. I'm guessing that has to do with her characterization and that's effective, but there is no emotion. I'm getting her opinion of others, her impressions of others. 
but the protagonist's emotions is like the number one thing in terms of like emotional connection with the reader. It's really, really important. By the second page, there's a part where Patrice says, like in her head, Patrice remembers how lonely it can be on the periphery of a group. So I understand that. And I liked that because that was sort of like a foreshadowing of something that happened in her backstory, a time where she was an outsider. That's great because being an outsider is a great way for us to connect with the protagonist because we typically connect with outsiders since they are, you know, suffering. However, that was the only mention of an emotion by the protagonist, an internal, very personal emotion in your heart. I was confused, I guess. This, that's my main note for, for this author. At one point, she starts talking to a fortune teller. And we see her, and this I'm pretty sure is intentional because the author does this quite deliberately in her writing. There's a lot of authority in the writing, which is a good thing. We see that, that Patrice is sure about everything in her life, like absolutely sure about everything. So she's like, well, what would I even ask this fortune teller? Even though there are things going on in her life that perhaps one would not be so sure of. Like, for example, her husband's going into surgery, right? Like, and even things like she mentions, like her marriage is rock solid. But even if you're like the most in love person in the world, if you're going to talk to a fortune teller, shouldn't you ask or else don't talk to the fortune teller? The characterization of her as someone who is like this certain isn't quite resonating with me. Like, I don't buy it. It may just be that I'm a very cynical person and I don't believe that anyone can be this secure about all things. But I don't know. I can buy that she's really, really confident as a way to mask something, right? Like she's actually super insecure, but she's masking that insecurity with a really brave front. But then I need more emotion to perhaps be forming these theories. And since there was very little emotion, very little in her head, I couldn't really quite do it. So like in general, I was confused about what was happening in terms of the setup. For a lot of the time, it it took me a long time to understand that the party was at her friend's house. I still don't know why she was looking for Berkeley and Romico. I don't know why we had to read about that on the first paragraph. I still don't know if this is a big party or a small party. At times it seemed like a big party, but then everyone could also hear everything everyone else was saying. So maybe it's a small party. I don't even understand why she's at the party. Like, is this like a run-of-the-mill socialization for her? It seemed like something she didn't quite do very often. But then does she want to network? Is her partner with her? Probably not. She seems to be alone, but I really don't know. As well... I'm wondering like if her state of mind is the best place to start this novel. A lot of the times when we think about like the best place to start your novel, we think about the plot. And that's great. We should think about the plot. People, place, like who's going to be there, etc. But there's also the internal state of mind in terms of like the emotions of, that the character is experiencing. This protagonist isn't experiencing any type of tension in the beginning of the novel. By the end, the fortune teller takes out raisins, which by the way, is a very weird thing to do at a party, but fine. Uh, Takes out raisins from her bag and she looks at the box of raisins and she freaks out. But even the freakouts were all external. They're things you could capture on a camera. So, because the raisins are apparently a trigger for her, right? Which is intriguing. It makes sense with the, with the title, but I need more emotionality. Like she responded with mouth tightening, pushing the box away, jumping to her feet. These are all things that I could see in the camera. And I need to see what's going on inside your head and your heart and your gut. This is why this is a book and not a movie. I want access to your mind. I want access to your innermost thoughts. So my note for this author is really dig into your protagonist's head and allow that to shine, allow those layers to come out. I think where this comes in, Cece, is that I feel like emerging writers 
get told, show, don't tell, show, don't tell. So they move from telling everything to suddenly showing everything and feeling like, okay, I'm not going to say she's freaked out. I'm going to show the tightening, etc. And that's good. You do want that. You do want to be showing in that way, but then they forget to link it to the emotionality or to inner monologue or whatever. So Yes, 100%. We do need the showing. We don't want all the telling, but that doesn't mean we leave out how the character is feeling. So it's it's showing and finding the balance of the emotion. Carly, what did you think? Yeah, I thought that was an excellent analysis. I totally agree. The big thing that stood out to me was the observation of it. I was also, again, trying to feel out what the tone of this was. And there was a couple instances of kind of that starkiness that I wanted to highlight, which I thought was interesting that I liked in the observation that the narrator says, a guy comes up to the taller woman and asks, babe, what happened? Babe describes it. And this like stark, you know, when you're at a party and you're like, here a couple going like, babe, 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 babe. You're like, oh my God. So, <laughs> I just loved that. That she thought that was super smart and kind of gave me a sense of what the tone of the book was in that sense of observation. So I really, I liked that. There there was a couple, there was some other instances too, where that like snarkiness comes out, which I thought was a nice little hint to a little bit of characterization, which I thought was great. Kind of coming back to what Cece said about the observation with all of this watching, there isn't really any stakes at the party itself. I think that's one of the things Cece was getting at, right? So we need like stakes of the whole book, but then we also need stakes in every scene and especially your opening scene. Like what is at stake if this party doesn't go well? What is at stake if she makes a blunder? What is at stake if her husband makes a flub or you know what I mean like what really is happening here like why are we observing this with you and so yeah I think Cece got at a lot of great points there so I, I don't want to double down on that but but yeah there's some some work to do there I also in general found this submission on the wordier side and for me I just would have really just pulled back and, and you know got a bit of a red pen out in terms of like just striking through some words and, and just things that I just don't think we need and I think part of it is this kind of observational scene it just became really wordy again because of all this watching but if it is a, a trait of this author and the style that they they write in I would just say you know pair it back pair it back you know let the let the scene do the work wonderful thank you okay Cece do you want to move on to our next query letter dear Cecilia Lira and Carly Waters the feedback you both provide on books with hooks along with Bianca is a delightful dose of Thursday writing education Carly, I'm happy to find your MSWL requests emotional, well-paced manuscripts. Cece, I'm delighted to find you're looking for stories with morally ambiguous characters, as well as secrets and revelations. And I enjoyed our one-on-ones through Manuscript Academy. I'm now excited to share my debut contemporary women's fiction, Where Stranger Leads, 80,000 Words. It will appeal to fans of the Star-Crossed Sisters of Tuscany by Laurie Nelson Spielman, and I affectionately present it as the adventurous soul-searching of Eat, Pray, Love meets James Bond's glitzy romance and danger. Andrea may love or forever regret her impulsive decision to follow a stranger onto a plane. As a broke author struggling with writer's block and anxiety, Andrea needs inspiration. It isn't in her tiny hometown or in the unexpected marriage proposal from her boyfriend. It doesn't hit when she runs off to her best friends either. Instead, creativity strikes when a stranger rescues her from a creep at an airport bar. Wanting to stay motivated, she makes an impulsive decision that lands her in Germany. When the charismatic stranger she secretly followed 
shows interest in her, she uses him as the muse for her romance novel. Andrea is infatuated, wanting to spend all her time with him. He may charm her with surprises, but his random disappearances are frustrating. His explanations are lacking. And did she just hear gunshots? Yes, she's sure of it, but pushes her instincts aside. Soon, eluding distressed crowds, concealing identities, and fleeing countries make her new romance more like a suspenseful mystery. Andrea's original goals become clouded as she falls in love, but the suave hero she's followed may be more of a dangerous villain. Now she must follow her heart and risk her life to find out who he truly is or let her instincts take the lead and let go of the only one who's ever made her feel alive. I'm a master's prepared nurse, a wife, and a mom of three. I belong to WFWA, and I've been developing my craft through online writing courses from Bianca and the Manuscript Academy. My fur baby is a tabby cat, and I someday hope to add a pup to our family. You can often find me immersed in stories or outside with our neighborhood clan. Thank you for your consideration. Lovely. Thanks, Cece. Carly, what did you think of the query letter? I liked the personalization at the top. I wrote on my Instagram this week about personalizations and how important they are. So I liked that this one was friendly, not overly friendly. You know, they clearly did a bit of research. So I thought that was a great start. Following on my note from last time about spelling errors and queries, one of the comps is spelled incorrectly. The name Lori Nelson Spielman, it's without an E. So again, I, I can overlook spelling errors, but they do take us out of the moment, right? And so that's just something where I'm like, huh, is Lori's name spelled like that? I thought Lori's name was spelled this way, right? And so again, I can overlook it, but it does take us out of the moment. In terms of comps, you know, we follow the star-crossed sisters of Tuscany with Eat, Pray, Love meets James Bond. You know how I feel about big comps. I would just strike through that whole section. I don't think we need it. I think Lori Spielman is enough. Uh, and you can add another one, but I wouldn't add the pray love James Bond. I really thought this hook was very interesting. Um, an impulsive decision to follow a stranger on a plane. Really, really strong. I, I thought that was really fascinating. And the next paragraph, though, I felt like kind of like a pop of a balloon in terms of the stakes kind of following out of the project. The author talks about being a broke author struggling with writer's block and anxiety. You know, this author needs inspiration. And for me, the, the thing about creativity being a main stake is really difficult for me personally, because I find that the stakes involved with a creative pursuit are more difficult to kind of capture in a novel in terms of the pace and, and everything like that. Like when, when it's in your head, creativity, as if you're chasing creativity, it's so in your head that it's really hard for it to be a physical roadblock in terms of, you know, these plot drivers and, and stakes and that sort of thing. So for me, I love to follow a stranger onto a plane, but then I was kind of like, oh, <laughs> we're chasing creativity around the world, right? And so I get the you pray love comp, but for me as, you know, the type of agent that I am, I'm just looking for something a little bit hookier through the whole project. So, you know, that, that took the air to the tires for me personally. Again, I, I feel like there's a lot going on here that's great, but in terms of my taste, I just couldn't wrap my head around the stakes after that. And then I think overall the queries a bit on the long side. Again, we start with such an interesting hook and then it's like detail, 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 you know, and I just think we don't need another three paragraphs of that. We need one paragraph to kind of follow up that awesome, awesome hook. And on a line level, I thought there was maybe a mix of tenses a little bit, you know, a past tense and a present tense. So I would just try to clean that up a little bit. Other than that, you know, I, again, you have a really strong hook here. So, you know, let, let's work with that. And, and there's a lot to work with here. Great. Thanks, Colleen. Cece, what were your thoughts on that? I really liked this query letter. 
You know, I hadn't thought about what Carly mentioned about the really big comps, even though we've talked about it so many times, but I agree now that she mentioned it, there's, there's something about hearing someone else say something and be like, okay, that actually does make sense. So I've met with this author before via Manuscript Academy. And like, I remember talking to her about this and Ypres Love meets James Bond is like a big, big, big promise. And if it works, it's going to be great. Right. But at the same time, Yeah. I think Harley's right that the that the comps are too big. So I think you can still make that promise, but perhaps with comps that aren't so so huge. I love the idea of someone getting in a plane to follow someone. That's that immediately piques my curiosity. I want to know what happened. I want to know what it is about him. I want to know what it's about her that would actually make her do that, right? Like I imagine she's at a point in her life where not a lot is happening or maybe a lot has happened and she's traumatized. I have no idea, but I'm curious and I'm already forming theories. So that's a great, great sign. I love the line about the gunshots. I, I, it's just, it's the sort of thing that I like in query letters because it makes me, it, it's voicey and voicey works for me. These, these types of things are super subjective. What I would want to know based on the query letter alone, we won't get into the pages just yet, but here's what I want to know. I want to know whether this is her story or again, she's just a vessel. I feel like this is going to be a common theme in this episode. Yes, she needs to get over her writer's block. She needs to write a book. I understand how how big that is in terms of an internal goal, but Carly is right. It's not enough to carry through a story, even though it's this major thing for any writer, any artist, right? Like that's struggling with any type of artistic block. It doesn't translate to a page. You can be the most brilliant writer in the world. It won't translate to the page. We all heard Bianca's interview with Lily King. And the reason why writers and lovers work so well is because the thing that's propelling the story forward isn't Casey's writing issues. It's there. It's always there, but it's not the stuff that makes the story go forward. So I think that in terms of making sure that Andrea's central conflict is about her, we could add something else to explain that there's more going on in her life. I worry that the stakes are going to plateau, like Carly said, just based on the query letter. You give us this great thing, right? Like someone follows someone into a plane and then it could flatten, it could plateau, and that could create an issue. However, I would still read the pages if I got a query like this, because it's it's a really great, interesting hook. A question that I want to ask is what happens if she upped the stakes of that? So in terms of maybe she signed a book deal, she's been given an advance, she has got five months in which she has to deliver this manuscript or else they're going to ask for the advance back, but she's already spent the advance. If she ups the stakes of that, will that help or you still don't think it would? Personally, I know the um, the Emily Henry book, Beach Read, there's characters there who are both like on deadline basically and, and you know, making it through their writing career. There's also a love story and other things going on. Also grief plot and everything like that. But that's it. I think, you know, based on this podcast or, you know, from my, my tweets and whatnot, I tend to not gravitate towards protagonists who are creators. That said, I loved Beach Read. Love, love, love. Like for me, if there's a way to write writers in a commercial way, I thought that was very well done. And so that would be where I would kind of send this person because I thought that that is about, you know, deadline and career and all of that sort of stuff, which I think this author is trying to get at, but it's just not on the page. So yes. So I think if we have like contractual deadlines, actual obligations, instead of just the pursuit of creativity in a spatial sense, um, those are two different things. So yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. It could be that this is like a make or break book that, you know, the last book really tanked and they promised the editor or lied and said that they were further along. And I don't know, some somehow they got 
up some advance that saved them financially. The thought of having to give back the advance means that financial stakes are huge. They then don't have somewhere to live or their whole career is ruined. I don't know. Like, I feel like there's ways to really up those stakes. Cece? I mean, this is me being a narcissist, but I love books about writing. I love books about writers. So I am, I'm on the opposite side of that spectrum. I just, I think that would work really well. I don't think she necessarily needs to up the creativity stakes necessarily in the beginning. I think it's more about not allowing it to plateau. I think that's a great idea. If, if that resonates with the writer, she should do it. Okay. So she got on the plane. She has to write this book. Now what still maintains? Because when you start your novel with high stakes, the biggest problem, the biggest challenge actually is escalating those stakes, right? Making sure that the tension and the imbalance and the conflict keeps escalating until you reach a climax, which will then lead to the ending, which should be you know, surprising and inevitable and yada, yada. But given that she just got into a plane to follow a stranger and we're all hooked, we all love this. I need something else in her life, another layer in her life to be peeled back. You know what my mind started doing? What if actually he's not a stranger? What if actually like he just reminds her of someone from her, like, you know, like a crush she had maybe in school when she was young. I don't know. Like, I just, I kept thinking of ways to peel back the layers and think of like what's within the, her attraction to him, right? Like what's, what's behind that. And she hasn't even noticed it yet. Maybe she finds out that he has a different name. I don't know. I have no idea. My mind is spinning, but that's a good sign. Obviously we've been talking about this grade letter for what, I don't even know, 10 minutes. And it's just, it's a really, really good sign that we're this invested. All right. Carly, what did you think of the opening pages? So uh, yeah, I don't need to kind of echo everything we've already said in the query, but we we do start off with um, in, in the second paragraph saying, I need a story because it's been too long since I've published my first book. So that stake of just like, it's been too long. What, what does that mean? Again, like Bianca said, is it the money's running out? Is it, you know, your brand? Is, is it in, in the sense what those stakes are? To me, just it's been too long is just too vague. So that's the perfect opportunity to kind of layer in what Bianca was saying about some opportunities there to, to make that a bit more high stakes. I also thought that we talk about a little bit of the traveling element, right? So we're in an airport, but the author has come from somewhere else, gone to her friend's house, from her friend's house, gone to the airport. I thought maybe let's just stay in this scene for a little while. It's an interesting scene. So let's just stay there a little bit more. Then we get a text from the agent, you know, asking about the pages and things like that. Again, like there, there are all these attempts to kind of make this into a pressure cooker situation, but I just don't think we're ramping it up to like a five alarm fire yet. And it, it, we just need to get there a little bit faster. So yeah, I thought there's, again, lots of potential here. But for me, I think we just have to figure out what those stakes are in order to kind of make this opening section shine. And yeah, it, it's hard to brainstorm without the author being here, but, but Cece and I could go, Bianca and I could I'll go off, you know, for days about what, what this could potentially be. But I even thought, you know, Cece was saying like, what if it's actually that she knows this person or something like that? I was thinking like, what if, you know, she has this huge anxiety about like planes themselves or something like that, or she, you know, got in a small plane crash when she was a kid or something like that. And she's like, got to get back on the plane. And, and so somehow this is like all connected with this man who reminds her of somebody. It's kind of like, I'm also kind of in my head, imagining some like flight attendant vibes, you know, that show the flight attendant we think it's about one thing but it's actually entirely about something else and I really want the rug ripped out from under me emotionally <laughs> to really get me going here so so yeah I think there's a lot to debate about this but again hard hard when the author's not on the podcast with us. maybe that's something we should start doing in the future one query and we have the author with us I think they're all now screaming and being 
like, hell no, that would be way too scary. So don't worry, we're not going to force you to do this. Cece, what did you think? Carly, I love your idea about her being afraid to fly. That makes so much sense. Yes. No, I like that. I really like these pages. I really like the the writing. I can tell if the writer is intent on setting up the protagonist's emotional state. And now we talk a lot about the importance of weaving in emotion and she's done this here. I can feel what the, what the protagonist is feeling. And that's amazing. That's exactly what, what should be happening because of the commercial fiction aspect of this, right? Like we have been promised James Bond. I do think that yes, the stakes being even higher would be absolutely great. And you know, it, it could be the advance, it could be the money, which makes sense, but it could also be something else. And there's lots of ideas to unpack there. And I do think it's like two lines, right? Like you don't need to go on and on about it. This is the opening scene. We, we don't need to know all the backstory, but just understanding that the stakes are even higher to make it into, like Carly said, a pressure cooker situation. That makes sense. I do think that there's something to be said about how long it takes for her to decide not to get on the plane. I don't think we need the flight attendant conversation. I don't know. I've gone back and forth on this because I also like that she's, you know, thinking about getting on the plane, but then she doesn't get on the plane. I love what the author did where there was a line break, line breaks, by the way, very important. There was a line break. And then we, I assumed she was on the plane, but then she's not on the plane. She's not going to Tahiti. I would want like a, I think the pace to be even faster. So she's at the bar and she's going to meet the stranger. I would also want when she decides there's a line that where, that where she says it gets smaller and smaller. And eventually the speck in the sky is no longer visible. Like one line there about what she left behind, like Tahiti won't happen. Inspiration won't happen. My life's going to fall apart. I have no idea. Not like this, like way more eloquently, obviously. It's just these great, great things that I love about this. Like I love like the first wine is going to make her brave, but then the second one's going to make her creative. I think I just switched that around, but It's just these small details that I really, really like. And I was always immersed in scene. I always knew what was going on. I knew what people looked like. So, so yeah, great job. Great. Thanks, Cece. All right. Let me read the third query letter. Dear Bianca, Carly, and Cece, I appreciate your review of my query and sample chapter in Books with Hooks. I set my alarm for the podcast and book talk discussions on Clubhouse every week. I'm delighted to present my novel, The Gallant, complete at 95,000 words in the literary genre with speculative elements and an LGBTQ protagonist. It blends the pseudoscientific magic and immersive period language of Dr. Strange and Mr. Norrell and their pissillary style of his bloody project with the emotional storms of the film The Lighthouse. Think gay Poldark meets Penny Dreadful with a villain based in Scottish folklore. In 1860s Scotland, teacher James Dwelly is a cunning man in secret. He must hide his magical sense of redolence, which means supernatural scent, or be condemned as a witch. He must also hide another more dangerous secret. When confronted with his growing feelings for another gentleman, Neil Bowen, Dwelly chooses to flee Glasgow rather than face scandal or criminal prosecution for homosexuality. He sails for the small desolate island of Mingalay in the Barra Isles, where he becomes the village schoolmaster. 
After a sham marriage and a tragic accident, Dwelly is wrongfully convicted of murder and banished to the haunted, inescapable lighthouse off Mingale's shore. His fellow prisoner is the enigmatic Mrs. McTamus, who had the magical sense of scrutiny, which is supernatural sight, before being blinded and banished to the lighthouse for witchcraft. Dwelly's crippling regret over leaving Bowen consumes his days in isolation, but he soon faces an even greater threat. The monstrous, bloodthirsty Shone, a cannibal pirate who has haunted the Sea of the Hebrides for a hundred years. When Bowen tracks Dwelly to the lighthouse, Dwelly must race to defeat the phantom pirate before the folk of Mingale and his beloved Bowen are slaughtered. Interspersed between chapters are news accounts, found letters, automatic spirit writings, fragments from invented books, and even a grim sea shanty. I'm a magazine photographer and feature writer in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. My photography is in private and public collections across North America. I've had two history slash photography books published in the UK. And at one time, I wrote a nationally syndicated humor column for newspapers. I'm also a classically trained tenor, scuba diver and tournament racquetball player. I'll be happy to send the manuscript of The Gallant for your review. Thanks for your time and consideration. Huck Beard. Okay, Carly, what did you think of that? I really like the title, the, the, the Gallant, Gallant. I'm not sure how we're going to pronounce it, but I loved it. I think that uh, that was a really great title. I think the word count is also good. You know, 95,000 words in the literary genre of speculative elements in an LGBTQ protagonist. So I like that we're not going over 100,000 words here. I can tell there's going to be a lot of world building in this one. And the ability to keep that under 100,000 words just shows a good amount of skill because I think there's a lot of plot here. So I think that's really great. We have a lot of cops here. And I would suggest that we need to really pair these back in the end here I think we end up with like five comps so I would just say be confident with like picking one or two I do think this book seems to be a blend of many genres and many things but part of that is just having confidence to like put your stake in the ground and say I'm blending these two things and here I am to to do my work by having that many comps I think we're just kind of dancing around like what is the book actually and in that thing and I also think we're missing a hook because I think the comps are trying to do the work of the hook whereas I think we actually need a really clear hook here instead so just two comps you know a hook really that's all that we need next paragraph we're starting to get wordy and again this is a world building type of novel so it's gonna happen but we have a lot of names a lot of places and just as the creator of this project you've already come up with these things and these are all your language already but these are new words and names and everything to us coming to a cold so I would instead of naming the island I would just like say like a small island instead of naming all the characters maybe just like figure out who you actually need to name here but but really this is a fascinating fascinating story very like fable-esque and I'm, I'm really fascinated by this I just had a couple questions again because it's speculative you know it, it's gonna happen you know I had some questions about like how does the pirate know about Bowen if this character has been led so far away from his lover like how does the pirate know who the lover is just little things like that but again because there's world building I know it's a, it's a complicated type of query to write I would cut the section that says interspersed between chapters that little bit about all the extra add-ons that's not something that we need if we read the book we'll, we'll see that but I don't think we need that in the 
query letter. Uh, and I thought that it was a great uh, author bio. So, you know, for a very busy book with a lot of world building, I thought uh, the author did a really great job. Great. Thanks, Collie. Cece, what would you like to add to that? So this is very well written and I appreciate that so much. My big note, I agree that we should cut the, the line about interspersed between chapters or news accounts. My big note is that, so right now, paragraphs three and four are dedicated to like the hook, right? Like the plot. I don't think you need paragraph three. It seems like backstory. Having read the pages, we know that Dwelly's already, you know, in this in this place, in this new place as a school teacher. So I don't think you need that paragraph. I think you can cut it. I think you can add a line about him having been banished or sorry, choosing to flee Glasgow because he was going to face criminal prosecution for his sexual orientation. So you can add a line about that if that's important, but you don't need it for the query letter. We want to know what's going to happen next, right? Like we don't want to know what has happened. Backstory is super important for a story, but not for a query letter. And I understand why the author did this. We, as, as writers, we often want to like explain, but this is why he is the way he is. This is why she wants what she wants. And that's, that's an amazing instinct to write a story, but to write a query letter, it might get in the way because it might just get too wordy. So I don't think we need it. And I think that's actually a really great way to make your query letter punchier and shorter. And yeah, and I love the author bio paragraph as well. Lovely. Thanks, Cece. Carly, let's dive into those opening pages. What did you think of them? So my big picture note for this is it felt really choppy. There was a lot of like line breaks in different sections and a little bit of bouncing around. I think this also comes from me not being well-versed in this genre. You know, I don't do a lot of speculative fantasy or, you know, world-building type of novels, but personally, it felt pretty choppy to me. Again, lots of bouncing around, lots of names. I just really, I think, wanted to be set in one scene for a little bit longer. And instead of naming all these things and jumping around, just letting us like feel like we're in place. So I think what comes into play here is the conversation around what is cinematic and what is writing and what is the role of the author's kind of job in terms of world building. I think that this book was trying to be a little bit more cinematic in the opening scenes when I really wanted it to ground me in in actual, like the writing of the scene a little bit more, if that makes sense. You know, I I was imagining that this has a lot of cinematic potential and and I think that it does, but I think that I would have liked to actually been immersed in one moment in one scene, you know, really get a sense of the elements of the community and the town and the village and the goals of the community, who were the threats, you know, things like, I think there's a lot happening here. It seems like there's pirates and there's the sea and there's the, the land and the village. And there's just so many elements of man versus nature, man versus man, like all of these things, right? And it's, I think we just really need to figure that out a little bit more clearly before we jump around. It could be my taste, but I do think that would be my main note for this one is just not quite so choppy. Great, Carly. Thank you. Cece? So I just want to say that the writing is great. This person can write really, really well. So many sharp visuals, so many great descriptions, so much like the turns of phrase, like it's just really, really good. So bravo. Okay, here's what happens for the listener in the opening scene. There's this person, we don't, a man, unnamed, okay? And he drowns. And clearly he's being murdered because we know that there's a blue man, also unnamed, who's kind of killing him, like essentially. And just please know this is like beautifully written. So it's not like like gratuitous or anything. But essentially this blue man is, he's described as like dark hair flowed over his shoulders as he swam 
braided with shells and bits of sea glass and a long horse-like tail flowed behind him. We know that his webbed hands were clawed, right? Like there's something weird going on here, which is good. I think it's, I'm not well-versed in the genre, but I think this fits the genre. So that's what happens in the opening scene. And that's a great way to like be, oh my God, like what happened? It's, it's, it's working. But one thing that is also happening is that we're talking about two people and we don't know their names. One person is totally unnamed and the other person's a blue man like a weird blue man who's like murdering someone. And then in the next page, I get a million proper names, not just of characters, but also of tobacco brands and places and ships. And maybe this is me, but it was really confusing for me. I'm wondering whether we need all those names right in the beginning. It's just, it's a lot. There's actually a paragraph dedicated to like who the villagers are essentially. And we get someone who's the baker and someone who's the weaver and someone who's, and we get every person's name. And I'm going, I'm so confused, especially because the other scene has to do with this murder. And I, A, I want to go back to the murder and we do go back fairly quickly. So that's okay. That's fair. The author did a good job, but I don't want to be confused. Confusion can be really, really tricky for readers, especially in the beginning. And unless it's intentional, and I don't think it is, it shouldn't be there. So another thing that's working really well is that we have Father McKinney explain to Dwelly what's going on with the harvest. And because he's an outsider, it makes sense to have Father McKinney explain that. So that's working really well. It's not info dumping. It's like explaining it to me too, because I'm also, I have no idea what's going on. So when we go back to the murder, right? Like, and people are like, we don't really know what happened. There's these theories, like, was it a squid? Was it a whirlpool? That's great. When we're back to that, I get very little emotion. And so if I were chatting with this writer, the first thing I'd ask him is this, who's the protagonist in your story? Because I should know that. And I don't, I do because I read the query letter. So I know it's Dwelly, but based on the pages alone, I would think it was Dwelly, but I wouldn't be a million percent sure. And the reason why I wouldn't be that as sure as I should be is because I don't get a lot of emotions from him in his head. I do get a lot of emotions as in what he's feeling and, but no, no fears running through his mind or very little. There's very little inner life from the protagonist. And that's complicated. The writer is using all these great devices. Dwelly has synesthesia. He can smell emotions. That is a great thing. I was so curious about that. I very much want to know, wait, what? But I would want to, I would just want Dwelly to be more center stage just so we can connect with him immediately and intensely. And I also think that would help with the name confusion. If I were sure that all these other names weren't quite as important as Dwelly's, I probably wouldn't have been as confused. So I don't know. I would still keep the opening scene because I think it's working really well. I was very curious when I read that. But then I would just make sure that the first page where we are naming people is like Dwelly, 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 like focused on the protagonist so that we're invested in his story. And afterwards you can open it up to the village, right? Like a village is a contained setting and it's full of quirky people. So that's a great way to start a story. So that would be my note, my notes for the author. Lovely. Thanks, Cece. Thanks, Carly, for another great Books with Hooks segment. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, 
it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of one-hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3,000 word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the beta reader matchup page and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Today's guest is a graduate of the University of California at Berkeley's English Literature Program and has worked as a newspaper reporter, editor, and contributor to mystery and television blogs. Currently, she's employed in public affairs for a major healthcare organization where she writes human interest stories. She lives with her family in Santa Rosa, California, and is at work on her second novel. It's my pleasure to welcome Heather Chavez. Heather, welcome to the show. It's so lovely to have you on after you and I met on Twitter. Yes, it's so great to be here. I was so excited. As I mentioned, you're my favorite podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's nice to be someone's favorite podcast. So what I'd like to begin with is somebody looks at a writer like you and they will say, oh my goodness, Heather has had overnight success because what they see is that you sent a query to an agent who signed you 20 days later, which is unheard of because normally 
20 months later, we're still waiting to hear back from agents. I think there's some agents I queried in 2017 that I'm still waiting to hear back from. And then what happened is when your book went out on submission, you sold it in a week. I mean, that is crazy ass stuff. But what people do not see is all of the years of work that came before that. So could you take us through practice books you were writing for decades before then? Oh, yes, of course. Yeah, overnight successes certainly aren't. Uh, I published my first book when I was 50, but I've been writing since I was a a child. I mean, I I wrote novellas when I was a teenager and evolved to full-blown novels when I was in my 20s. And like you mentioned, I, I wrote three and a half practice books before starting No Bad Deed. And did a lot of edits and then just threw things away. And it's with anything, I think, that you do have to get experience at it, however that looks to you. And so I also kind of put it on hold when my kids were both very, very young. And so it took a while before I took it seriously, I think. But yeah, no, a lot of drafts and abandoned projects and a lot of time went into that overnight success. I love hearing about the overnight success, but I love even more hearing about all the work that went into it because I've said many times before that I have been in creative writing classes with a ton of writers. I got published when many of them didn't, and it's certainly not because I'm more talented than they are. It's just because I was way more stubborn in terms of giving up. So being stubborn really can propel you as can being super, super passionate about something. I mean, what was the thing that kept you going through all of those setbacks, rejections, putting things on hold? What's what brought you coming back time and again? Well, I was in a rare, I feel like it's a rare circumstance, which is that I didn't really try to get published because I didn't really believe in my work. And I kind of set my goal that I wanted to write a book that I felt was ready to be published as opposed to being published, because that isn't something you can control as an author. That's totally out of your control. And so my goal was to make it publishable. Whether it was published or not, that really was beyond what I could do. And so what kept me going is just, I kind of wrote them for me. And also because I've always, you know, told my kids to experience their dreams and to explore their passions. And so it seemed kind of hypocritical of me not to do the same. So I think wanting to be fulfilled and also a role model for my kids was was a huge part of what kept me going. Just the need to write. It was never a a goal to make money at it. It was more like, I just want to explore these themes and, and finish this novel. So was No Bad Deed the first book that you queried in terms of querying agents? Kind of. I sent, I think, eight queries back in the 90s, back when you actually had to do snail mail and <laughs> print out the manuscript. And, God, can you um, remember that? Because you would run to the post box every yes. day and wait for this envelope. And then when it was yeah. a thick envelope, then you knew it was your submission that had come back and you were all depressed about it. I remember <laughs> that. Yes. And, you know, I was also so young that I didn't realize that I was more easily discouraged. Like you said, tenacity. Tenacity is what persistence is what makes, I think, someone actually get be able to get through the process because it is it is a long process. Even once you're published, it's, you know, there's a lot of waiting and you have to be able to be comfortable in your own skin and be able to be patient, but also 
still continue to chug along. And so, yeah, I, I didn't realize at the time that I was actually getting positive feedback at the time. I thought, oh, they requested my full, but then they didn't buy it or they didn't want to represent me. And so I thought, yeah, I'm stopping. I, I didn't even get to 10. I think, I think it was eight that I, <laughs> you know, and I think I got three full requests out of that, but then I was just like, oh, but they don't like me. I'm, I'm not ready yet. <laughs> You got three full requests when you were like how old? I mean, well, okay, I don't, I don't want to, I don't, don't want to discussing age. <laughs> I don't want to give anything away, yeah. But yeah, you know, to be that young and to be getting yeah. that many full requests, and it just shows you how we know nothing when we are young. Because when you get older, you get those full requests, and you know you're doing something right. That's a damn big deal, and you're actually right. on the right track. And so you get encouraged by that. But at that age, what the hell do you know? And you're just like, hey, I'm giving up. Yes, I know. And I did. But I guess everything happens, you know, in the time that it's meant to happen. And I firmly believe that age and experience makes us better writers. So there's that as well. So could you just tell the listeners a bit about your book before we dive into some questions that I have about the craft of writing? Uh, Of course. It's about a woman um, who is driving home from a long shift at a veterinary clinic, and she comes across this couple fighting alongside the road. And she has this moment of hesitation. Should she get out of the car? Should she call 911? What is it that she should do? And she decides to call 911, but then also get out of the car and circumstances kind of explode. And she ends up intervening and the attacker takes her car. But before he does, he warns her, let her die and I'll let you live. Then he takes her car, which has her purse and her keys, you know, everything. And suddenly she's worried that, you know, there will be consequences, not too worried at first, but then the next night her husband disappears while trick-or-treating with their child. It goes downhill from there. <laughs> wow. Talk about a da, da, da yeah. moment. And this makes me fearful because I am an intervener. I am always someone <laughs> who does get involved in these kinds of things. And my husband always tells me not to, and it's not safe. And now you, you're making me question that, Heather. Um, <laughs> all right. So to write this kind of twisty, turny, propulsive, psychological, suspenseful novel, the thing that you have to know about is pacing in terms of keeping readers turning pages, in terms of creating tension, all of that, Mm -hmm. what are the bits of advice that you can give the listeners out there? And not just to those of them who write the same genre, because I honestly Mm -hmm. believe that pacing is incredibly important in all genres. Keeping readers hooked, keeping readers turning pages is something that every writer needs to master regardless of the genre that they're writing in. So what kind of advice do you have based on your experience of this and the trial and error of it? I think you're absolutely right that it's not just a thriller thing. And it's also not just a fast paced thing. It's about balance. It's about knowing what's right for your story because my, you know, no bad deed is going to have a very different feel than, you know, a historical fiction or something that has maybe moments more slower moments. It's about finding what pace works for the story you're telling and also knowing what tools accomplish the things you want to accomplish. I'm a big proponent of pacing in the second draft because in the first draft, you spend too much time focused on those little things that make a book go slower or faster. 
you're going to lose the momentum of writing itself. So I always add, you know, the pacing um, details more in the second draft. That tends to be what I do. And some reasons why you might want to speed up the pace would be as if you want to engage them in the action, keep them turning pages, keep them hooked, like you said, exactly that. But you also need to slow it down sometimes too, to give them room to breathe and give them room to connect with the characters. Because if you're going full pace all out all the time, they're going to have less of an emotional connection and, and not really care if this person is going through a crisis of whatever it is. If they don't connect with the character, they're not going to connect with the plot. So, I mean, you need to be aware of that. And be sure, I think one of the things that that was hardest for me to learn is to make sure that I got the action reaction sequence correct. Because if you don't give a reader context early on, and if they're not oriented to what's happening, then they can sometimes get lost and that nothing kills pace, like not knowing what's going on. Um, And so to make sure, you know, something happens and then there's a physical consequence and then there's the emotional consequence and then there's the decision. And you need to make sure you have all those in the, you know, the correct order to engage. Can, Can you give us like an example of that? So for the listeners to kind of contextualize something so that they have it very clear in their mind what you mean when you say all of this. Oh, of course. Like Jane is shoved down the stairs. That's the action. She Something happens. She's shoved down the stairs. Her first reaction is going to be physical, like, ouch, that really hurt. <laughs> um, and then the, the then after she processes that, then she'll be like, wait, confused, frightened, angry. She'll be like, what happened? It'll be that moment of what just happened to me. And then the last stage is, okay, she resolves to find out who pushed her. That would be an example. You can't skip those steps. You have to make sure they're happening in the right order. But that's one thing I, it took me a while to learn. I'm sure everyone else is, I mean, it's a simple concept, but it took me a while And that's what you should look for in second draft. Like, again, get the first draft written, but then look for those, make sure they're in the correct order in the second draft. Wonderful. Yeah, I love that. And I agree. In the first draft, again, it's the writer telling the story to themselves. And in the second draft, they start telling it to the reader, which means that they really have to be paying attention to all the things that the reader needs in order to keep them reading. What else? I would say that, I mean, there are so many different things that affect pacing, but I think what I consider the three major ones, I'm sure everyone else has their own opinion, is action, dialogue, and sentence slash paragraph length. So those are the things that really, I think at least that I pay careful attention to when I'm in my second draft is action. If you use, you know, really active voice and shorter sentences, you're more likely to have the faster pace that you're looking for. If you want to, for dialogue, if you have periods of introspection or you're describing a beautiful sunset or whatever is, you know, in your book, it's going to slow it down. So it's not that I, you need room for both, but it's just an awareness, like increasing the stakes will increase the the pace, but you also need those slow moments where people pause and reflect and react process, because we all have that as, you know, as human beings, that's how we work. <laughs> and it's the same with sentence length. For instance, you know, if you have a long, complex sentence, 
then that's going to slow the reader down in most cases. In some cases, you can have one of those really brilliantly constructed, um, like Kuntz, Dean Kuntz, I, I, he's really good at this, where you just have this long sentence that it's somehow still propelling you forward and, and making you just, gosh, got to turn that page. But it's it's just an awareness of, you know, don't be afraid of sentence fragments, um, you know, or short paragraphs. Don't use them, overuse them, just like cliffhangers. Don't overuse them, but be aware of their purpose. And the line level is so important. So many writers think that that is not what's going to sell books. And certainly a book that is wonderful on the line level doesn't necessarily mean that book will sell, but it doesn't feel to me that you can have a good book without things reading well on the line level. And that's exactly where, like you say, those shorter sentences come in where the pacing speeds up, where the pacing slows down. I tell my students that if you are going to have bullets flying at a person and they're ducking under a car to hide away or to take cover, that is not the time to tell the reader what color sweater your main character is wearing and the make and model of the car they're hiding under. That Those are things, if you want the reader to know that, you tell them that earlier in the exposition, but you definitely pare down descriptions and exposition as much as possible when you are trying to write action in a fully fast-paced scene. Yeah, it's all about tightening. I remember going back to my first draft of No Bad Deed and comparing it, not my first draft, actually, it was probably my third, a second or third, but comparing the first 200 words of each draft. And the truth was, I got a lot more information in that, in the finished draft. I mean, I got more setting. I got her relationship with her husband. I got, I mean, I got a lot of information in that first 200 words just by tightening, you know, just by omitting words and deciding, is this necessary? But again, you're right. It's all about going back and tightening, you know, and I'm actually very excited about the book I'm working on now. That's the stage I'm at. I just finished my structural edit, my first set of structural edits, and now I get to print it out and go line by line and make sure that the pacing is working. And so I'm pretty, I'm pretty excited about that. Yeah. And during that process, you can take out a whole bunch of words, but that also frees up room for you to add things that will add to the story. So it's not always just taking things out. Uh, And something that works really in your favor as well with a lot of, in terms of pacing with action scenes, is to use something called action beats instead of dialogue tags. So for the listeners, you will have a piece of dialogue and you will add he said or she said or he yelled or she whispered, which really doesn't add very much. It doesn't give the reader very much to imagine. And a reader is fully engaged in a story when they're imagining pretty much the same thing that the author imagined as they were writing something down. And so action beats replace dialogue tags. So instead of duck down, he said, it would be hit the deck or duck down. He sprinted across the highway, ducking the oncoming trucks. So instead of just he said and she said, you use those action beats to give action, to tell us what the character's doing, to further the story along in a very organic way, as opposed to slowing it down and giving that information in exposition. So that's something that works very well there as well. I agree a hundred percent. I think that's one of the things that I actually do look for in the revision process is also, you know, if you want to get into the state of mind of the character and increase really like, again, connect 
the reader with the character, which is the most important thing, you know, having those moments where instead of just he said, or even he said angrily, you describe his fists were balled at his sides or those kind of things were those moments where you know he's angry because of the description, you know, the old show versus tell. Not that there's not space in the book for both, but knowing what tools to use in a situation is is key, I think, to, to make sure the pacing yeah. And so when I realized that, especially because, I mean, you always get told as a writer, show, don't tell. Mm-hmm. Um, and I saw about action beats early on, but I still did the he said, she said thing. And then when I started listening to my audiobooks, it just feels so redundant because the voice actor is saying this thing, you know, it's dialogue. And then you have the he said and the she said. And you start to realize how it really doesn't add very much value. So for me, that was definitely a a learning curve. You know, I'm glad you're bringing this up right now, now that I'm in my revision process, (laughs) because I'm adding that to my list now to check for those action beats. Definitely. And I think your audiobook narrators will thank you for it because it allows (laughs) them as well to get really immersed into the action of something. And when they know he thumped his fist on the desk or his knuckles were white, it gives them so much more to kind of dramatize with as opposed to he said angrily. Yeah, so definitely something to look out for. You mentioned cliffhangers. Are you able to just chat a bit about those in terms of how they might help readers turning the pages in terms of pacing? I actually tended in No Bad Deed, I actually overused cliffhangers, which is why I say be aware of your tools and use them appropriately and sparingly. It's just like exclamation points. I think I use them in emails all the time, but I don't use them in my books very often. Matter of fact, I don't know if I've ever, if somebody said fire, you know, I would use one. (laughs) But in most cases, I, I don't. But it's, you know, leaving, leaving somebody like I had one in No Bad Deed where someone screams and then I changed it so that you saw the immediate. So you had some resolution, even though you still didn't know everything that happened. You had some resolution because if you overuse cliffhangers, they tend to seem kind of melodramatic. And that's another thing that I, I try to look for in the editing process. But a cliffhanger when used, when used properly is, I think, wonderful. You know, it's like, oh gosh, I've got it. Especially, you know, one thing I do and I, I've, some of the authors I really love, like JP Delaney is an example. You know, he is chapters are so smart and so short and so pacey. And, you know, so you can be pacey and, and end on that note where, oh no, there's a screen, there's a shot, whatever, you know, I'm being overly simplistic, but just long as long as not every chapter ends that way. So again, use them sparingly, but they're very effective. And there's more subtle ways of doing it. A cliffhanger doesn't literally have to be you leaving your character dangling off of a cliff. Advice there as well is write a chapter to resolution and then perhaps end it sort of two paragraphs before where you were planning to end it. So perhaps you know, with a thought unexpressed or just hinted at, or two characters are involved in dialogue and you don't quite get them to the resolution of the dialogue so that it doesn't quite feel as complete for the reader. So there are tons of different ways to do cliffhangers, perhaps in more subtle ways. But certainly the thing with that is that the reader is going, 
what the hell? I need to know what happens. And what makes me laugh is I chat to a ton of book clubs and they always thank me for one thing. And it's not my brilliant writing. It's not my brilliant characterization. What they thank me for is my short chapters, which, yeah, yeah, I mean, it shows you how important that is to readers. You know, and what you just said is absolutely brilliant is that when you're when you're in the editing process again not the writing process the editing look at where you left it where, where you ended it could you end it two sentences later or paragraphs or whatever or two sentences earlier did you end it in a spot that is perfect and try to vary it that's what pacing really is is you vary it you you want sometimes you want to leave them with resolution maybe exhausted whatever and just like breath. Um, but other times you want them to be just totally left out of sorts and just like, you know, discombobulated and I need to get to the next page. So it's, it's all about looking at where you ended the chapter and then deciding what would happen if you ended it just a little earlier or a little later. Yeah. And if the listeners out there, anything like me, nobody can belabor a point like I can. I will beat the shit out of that point until it is like panting on the ground and it's got its hands up and it's begging for mercy. And that is why I'm so grateful to my writing groups because they will look at my work and they'll be like, okay, you have spent a page and a half really belaboring this point and we didn't need to because you kind of gave us enough in one line. So take all of that stuff out. Have you got that as well? Heather, have you got people who read your work to catch all the things you do wrong or are you really good at self-editing? With uh, No Bad Deed, the first person who read that version of the book all the way through was my agent. I had an early first draft that I ended up throwing away two thirds of. I It was a third person, three points of view. And so I ended up throwing away two thirds of it. And so I had a friend read that. She gave me some advice. Uh, and at that point, no one else read it. So I wrote very, very much in a bubble which once you're traditionally published does not happen anymore. So I do have a a couple of beta readers. I do have a critique group that I've just started last year, you know, participating in. And so now I do, I would say my trusted sounding board is probably still my husband and my agent. My agent is really direct, really brilliant, and has amazing advice. So I think I'm I'm fortunate now to be able to have people in my corner whose instincts I trust, but I did not have that with No Bad Deed. I, I very much wrote in a bubble with it. Wow. And you still managed to, to write an amazing book without all of that. For the listeners who are writing in this genre and who will be querying soon, could you tell us who your agent is so that they can make a note of it in terms of querying? Of course, it's a Peter Steinberg with Fletcher and Company. Yeah. And I would also like to point out that No Bad Deed I did nine drafts. So, you know, there is an advantage to having people who can look at your work and help you make those tough decisions that it takes you longer to get to on on your own. Definitely. A, A psychological thriller that I spent almost two to three years working on. I must have revised it. I don't know how many times I've finally given up on it. And I really feel that if I'd written that then the way I'm writing my current novel now with my agent, having a look at every single chapter, telling me where I'm going wrong, getting me back on the path, I think that book would have been 
uh, much easier to write and certainly much more marketable as well. So there's definitely something to be said for having people reading your work along the way rather than right at the end when if you went off course kind of on chapter four, you're a bit screwed because now you have to go back to chapter four and fix everything. And of course, everything then has a knock-on effect as well. Oh my gosh, yes. That's why I had to throw up two-thirds of my first draft. Frustrating, but necessary. Mm-hmm. Heather, we're almost at the end of our time. Was there anything else in terms of pacing that you wanted to add or perhaps general advice to the listeners to keep them going with their bums in the chair <laughs> as they stare down the blank page? I, I don't think I have anything else to say about pacing, but if I were to give one piece of advice, which I, I have on occasion, it's exactly what you just said, right consistently. And don't beat yourself up if you miss a day, just start again the next day, but try to do it every day if you can, even if it's five minutes, because it keeps a story in your head. And, you know, it's like you said, persistence is what pays off. And so uh, just keep doing it. Heather has paraphrased my awful advice into something that is wonderful. So persistence, and I was like, just be damn stubborn. But I I, I prefer her advice. So there we I go. yours better. Be stubborn and persistent. Be damn stubborn. There we go. There we go. Well, Heather, thanks so much for taking the time. It was so lovely chatting with you. Yes, it was wonderful. Thank you for having me again. And that's it for today's episode. If you have any questions about writing or publishing, please email me at theshitaboutwriting at gmail.com and I'll do my best to get them answered for you. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who is in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and -and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com slash course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com slash course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. 
But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who is in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com slash course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com slash course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there.